I've looked at a very large number of terrible things, both in my studies and in my personal life and in my private practice. And my conclusion has been that despite the vast um, ocean of ignorance that we all swim in and the overwhelming proclivity for malevolence that characterizes the human psyche, that the nobility that's part and parcel of us and the potential can transcend that and defeat it. And so it's very dark, but there's something very bright at the bottom. And so I'm very optimistic about that. And that's part of the reason that I'm, well, that I wrote the book that I wrote, but also that I'm touring around the world, talking to people about adopting something, approximating a vision that's noble and worthy and setting their speech straight and getting their lives together and shouldering the responsibility of the world in a manner that's good for them and their family and their communities. And to think about that as an aspirational goal that provides them with the meaning to offset the tragedy of their life. And I believe that's solid, right to the core. And my impression is that it's that knowing that, hearing that, which is something that all people already know in some sense, but hearing that articulated clearly is of great utility to people. And every time someone comes up to me, and this happens very often, uh, multiple times a day, no matter where I am, and someone comes up to me and says, um, excuse me, are you Dr. Peterson? And they usually say that very politely, and they're apologetic for disturbing me, even though they're not disturbing me. They say, um, look, I was having a rough time a couple of years ago. Addicted, alcoholic, lonesome, disturbed in my personal relationships. I've been watching your lectures, listening to your books, listening to your podcasts. Things are much better. Thank you. It's like every time that happens, it's overwhelming. I'm sorry it always breaks me up, but it's very overwhelming. You see. It's very overwhelming to have strangers come up and tell you things that they won't tell people that are close to them. You know, it indicates that they trust, that there's a trust there, that's a deep trust because the people who are doing this, they come up and tell me that because they're very pleased about it, but also because they know that I'll be pleased about it. And I am overwhelmingly pleased about it. And so, and for me, every time I hear something like that, that's a victory, you know. I studied the structure of totalitarianism for a very long time and became a very firm believer in the idea of good and evil. And I do believe that the most appropriate way to conceptualize the nature of human experience and is as a battle between good and evil. And I think it's a very serious battle because the evil is very dark and very terrible. And every time I see someone who has reoriented themselves in, in an upward direction, then I regard that as part of what defeats that terrible malevolence and bitterness. And, and I believe that the fundamental doctrine that each individual is a center of creation, I believe that to be literally and metaphorically true. And 
And I also believe that each of us partake, participate in the process of transforming what could be into what is, and that we do that as a consequence of our ethical choices, and that we shape the world as a consequence of that. And so then when I hear someone come up to me and say, look, you know, I've, I've done everything I could in the last while to put myself together, and it's, and it's much less dark around me, I think. That's one more major victory on the bitter road uphill. If you could give one advice to us how we could be able to actually put our opinion out there and to actually make people listen and not to cause some mindless conflict with just yelling, what advice would you give us? Learn to write. I'm, I'm dead serious. Like, I'm dead serious about that. Um, because writing is formalized thinking. And so the way you write is First of all, you need a problem. Because why write if you don't have a problem? So this is good advice if you're just writing an essay, by the way, for your classes. It's like pick a bloody problem that you want to write about because otherwise it's false right from the start. It's up to you to engage with the material until you find something that grips you, that you desire to investigate. Okay, so you need a problem. Well, the next thing you need to do is, well, you need to have something to say about the problem. Well, so? Reading. Reading is really good for that. Read as much as you can. Get your, your hands on that addresses the problem. Okay, so now, now, you, now you know a bunch of things, or at least provisionally know them. You at least have access to them. Well, now you start, you start sorting through it. It's like, okay, well, maybe I need to summarize what I've learned. And then I need to iron out the contradictions between what I've learned. And I need to elegantly formulate that. And, and I need to get my word choice right, and my phrase choice right, and my sentence choice right, and I need to organize the sentences into proper paragraphs, and the paragraphs into proper sequence so that I have a coherent argument. And at the same time, what you're doing is, is you're, 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 um, you're integrating your own personality at the highest and most abstract level of organization, and you're sharpening your tools, and you're putting yourself straight because you're learning to think. You learn to do that by writing. And so I would say, pick some hard problems and learn to write very, very carefully. And, I, and when I say pay attention to the word, I mean that. Pick the right words. Organize them into the right phrases. Get your sentences straight. Like when I wrote my first book, Maps of Meaning, I believe I wrote every sentence in that book 50 times. 50 variants of every sentence. I'd read it once. I'd read it again, I'd read it again, I'd read it again, and I'd have a little competition. Which sentence is better? Which sentence is better? I'd pick that sentence. Do the same with the paragraphs. Over many, many years, you hone your words. They're, they're the most powerful thing about you, bar none. If you are an effective writer and speaker and communicator, you, you have all the authority and competence that there is. And so you're at university. Maybe you're taking a humanities degree. Well, that, what's the humanities degree for? It's to teach you how to think. You learn to think by writing. Now, there's more to read, to speak, and all of that. But the best thing you can do is read and write every day, a couple of hours every day. Write about things you find important and see if you can 
See if you can discover what you believe to be true. And that will build you a foundation. And it's unbelievably practical. Like if you look at people who are phenomenally successful across life, there's various reasons, but one of them is, is that they're unbelievably good at articulating what, they, what they're aiming at and strategizing and negotiating and, 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 and enticing people with a vision forward. It's like, get your words together, man. That's, that makes you unstoppable. And that, that's really, that's the core of the humanities, that idea. It's get your words together. Make yourself an articulate creature. And then you're, you're deadly in the best possible way. You students, you might think in your more cynical moments that you have to offer your professors what they want and gerrymander the content of your language to suit their predilections or what you consider to be their predilections. First of all, it's a very small minority of professors who are corrupt enough to punish you for producing a high quality essay that they don't agree with. And, and though that's reprehensible, but it's, it, it doesn't happen very often. But more importantly, it's, it's, uh, it's the highest academic sin to do that. Because what you're here to do is to learn to find your true voice. And every time you deviate from that for expedient reasons, you corrupt yourself. And not in a trivial way. Because when you formulate your arguments, that, that becomes a permanent part of your character. You carry that with you. It becomes part of the structure through which you view the world and it guides your actions. And so you hold your words pristine and you work in a dedicated way to become as articulate and clear as you can possibly become. And there's nothing that's more practical and noble than that at the same time. That's why the humanities are so valuable. You, know, you think, well, what good is a humanities degree? It's like, well, you come out of here able to speak and think and write, no matter where you go, like you're, you're headed for, for the pinnacle and hopefully in a, in, a, in a way that's positive for everyone. So that's what I would recommend. to not make sense of things it's very anxiety provoking it's very depressing because if things are so chaotic that you can't get a handle on them your body defaults into emergency preparation mode and your heart rate goes up and your immune system stops working and like you burn yourself out you age rapidly because you're surrounded by nothing you can control it's varying that's an existential crisis right it's anxiety provoking and depressing very hard on people and even more than that it turns out that the way that we're constructed neurophysiologically is that we don't experience any positive emotion unless we have an aim and we can see ourselves progressing towards that aim. It isn't precisely attaining the aim that makes us happy. As you all know, if you've ever attained anything, because as soon as you attain it, then the whole little game ends, then you have to come up with another game, right? So it's, it's Sisyphus. And that, that's okay, but, but it does show that the attainment can't be the thing that drives you because it collapses the game. That's what happens when you graduate from university. It's like, you're king of the mountain for one day, and then you're like surf at, 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 at Starbucks for the next five years, you know? So, yeah. So what happens is that, that human beings are weird creatures because we're much more activated 
by having an aim and moving towards it than we are by attainment. And what that means is you have to have an aim, and that means you have to have an interpretation. And it also means that the nobler the aim, that's one way of thinking about it, the better your life. And that's a really interesting thing to know because, you know, you've heard ever since you were tiny that you should act like a good person and you shouldn't lie, for example. And you might think, well, why the hell should I act like a good person and why not lie? You know, even a three-year-old can ask that question because smart, smart kids learn to lie earlier, by the way. And they, they think, well, why not twist the fabric of reality so that it serves your specific short-term needs? I mean, that's a great question. Why not do that? Why act morally? If you can get away with something and it, it brings you closer to something you want, well, why not do it? These are good questions. It's not self-evident. Well, it seems to me tied in with what I just mentioned. It's like. You destabilize yourself and things become chaotic, that's not good. And if you don't have a noble aim, then you have nothing but, but shallow, trivial pleasures. And they don't sustain you. And that's not good because, because life is so difficult, so much, it's so much suffering, it's so complex. It ends and everyone dies and it's painful. It's like without a noble aim, how can you withstand any of that? You can't. You become desperate, and once you become desperate, things go, things go from bad to worse very rapidly when you become desperate. And so there's the idea of the noble aim, and it's, it's not something, it's, it's something that's necessary. It's the bread that people cannot live without, right? That's not physical bread. It's the noble aim. And what is that? Well, it was encapsulated in part in the story of Marduk. That's, that's, it's to pay attention. It's to speak properly. It's to confront chaos. It's to make a better world. It's something like that. And that's enough of a noble aim so that you can stand up without, you know, cringing at the very thought of your own existence so that you can do something that's worthwhile to justify your wretched position on the planet. What you're looking for in a text and in the world for that matter is, is sufficient order and direction. So then we have to think, well, what does sufficient order and direction means? Well, you don't want to suffer so much that your life is unbearable, right? That just seems self-evident. Pain argues for itself. I think of pain as the fundamental reality because no one disputes it, right? I mean, even if you say that you don't believe in pain, it doesn't help when you're in pain. You still believe in it, right? It's, 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 you can't pry it up with logic and rationality. It just stands forth as as what the fundament of existence, and that's actually quite useful to know. Say, well, you don't want any more of that than is absolutely necessary. And I think that's self-evident. And then you say, well, wait a minute, it's more complicated than that. You don't want any more of that that's necessary today, but also not tomorrow and not next week and not next month and not next year. So however you act now, better not compromise how you're gonna be in a year because that'll just be counterproductive. That's part of the problem with short-term pleasures, right? It's like act in haste, repent at leisure. Everyone knows exactly what that means. So you have to act in a way that works now and tomorrow and next week and next month and so forth. And so you have to take your future self into account and human beings can do that. And taking your future self into account isn't much different than taking other people into account, right? Because I remember there's this Simpson episode and uh, Homer downs a quart of mayonnaise and vodka. <laughs> And he says, um, someone, Marge says, you know, you shouldn't really do that. And Homer says, that's a problem for future Homer. I sh I'm sure glad I'm not that guy. <laughs>
And the idea is this, is that if you configure your life so that what you are genuinely doing is aiming at the highest possible good, then the things that you need to, to survive and to thrive on a day-to-day -day basis will deliver themselves to you. That's a hypothesis, and it's not some simple hypothesis, right? Because it, what it basically says is, if you dare to do the most difficult thing that you can conceptualize, your life will work out better than it will if you do anything else. Well, how are you going to find out if that's true? Well, it's a Kierkegaardian leap of faith. There's no way you're going to find out whether or not that's true unless you do it. So, no, no one can tell you either, because just because it works for someone else, I mean, that's interesting and all that but it's no proof that it'll work for you you have to be all in in this game and so the idea is seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness it's like that's actually a fairly important caution when you're talking about not having to pay attention to what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear it's like what it's essentially saying is that those problems are trivial in comparison and the probability is that if you manifest yourself properly in the world that those things will come your way is extraordinarily high and I believe I believe that that's exactly right I mean I I've, I've watched people operate in the world and I would say that there is no more effective way of operating in the world than to conceptualize the highest good that you can and then strive to attain it there's no more practical pathway to the kind of success that you could have if you actually knew what success was and so that's what this that's what this sermon is attempting to to posit it's like in in the story of pinocchio you know what happens at the beginning of the story of pinocchio is that geppetto wishes on a star we talked about that a little bit and so what geppetto does is align himself with the metaphorical manifestation of the highest good he can conceptualize and say he says he makes a he makes a commitment let's say he aims at the star and for him the star is the possibility that he can take his creation a puppet right whose strings are being pulled by unseen forces and have it transform into something that's autonomous and real well that's a hell of an ambition you know and we're wise enough to put that in a children's movie but too foolish to understand what it means it's such an interesting juxtaposition that that we can both know that and not know it at the same time you can go to the movie you can watch it and it makes sense but that doesn't mean that you can go home and think well I know what that meant well people are complicated right we exist at different levels and all the levels don't communicate with one another but but the movie is a hypothesis and the hypothesis is there's no better pathway to self-realization and the ennoblement of being than to posit the highest good that you can conceive of and commit yourself to it. And then you might also ask yourself, and this is definitely worth asking, is do you really have anything better to do? And if you don't, well, why would you do anything else? Therefore, take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I spent a long time trying to figure out what that meant too because it's another one of those lines that can easily be read as pro-grasshopper and anti-ant you know, you remember the old fable of the grasshopper and the ant the ant works and the grasshopper fiddles and the ant has a pretty good time in the winter and the grasshopper dies 
And so this is like a pro grasshopper line, but it's not because it says something else. It says that if you orient yourself properly and then pay attention to what you do every day, that works. And it, I actually think that that's in accordance with, with what we have come to understand about human perception because what happens is that the world shifts itself around your aim because you're, you're a creature that has an aim you have to have an aim in order to do something you're an aiming creature you look at a point and you move towards it it's built right into you and so you have an aim well let's say your aim is the highest possible aim well then so that sets up the world around you it, it organizes all of your perceptions it organizes what you see and you don't see it organizes your emotions and your motivations so you organize yourself around that aim and then what happens is the day manifests itself as a set of challenges and problems and if you solve them properly then you stay on the pathway towards that aim and you can concentrate on the on the on the day and so that way you get to have your cake and eat it too you can point into the distance the far distance and you can live in the day and it seems to me that that's that makes every moment of the day supercharged with meaning. That, that's how, because if everything that you're doing every day is related to the highest possible aim that you can conceptualize, well, that's the very definition of the meaning that would sustain you in your life. Well, and then the issue is, well, back to Noah. Well, all hell's about to break loose and chaos is coming. It's like when that's happening in your life, you might want to be doing something that you regard as truly worthwhile. Because that's what will keep you afloat when, when everything is flooded. I'm a big fan of schedules and lists, but you have to have the right attitude towards a schedule and a list. So first of all, you make a list of what things that you have to do that day, what important things you have to do that day. But you want to remember that that list should serve your higher interests, right? Your higher values. So that presupposes that you've already decided what your higher values are and that you have a vision in place. Then you want to decompose that into what's necessary that day. Aim high, let's say, and then concentrate on the day. What are the most important things that I need to attend to so that I'm in better shape tonight than I was in the morning? And if you ask yourself that question, you know, you have to want the answer, which is rather demanding, let's say. You're, you're, it's another example of orienting yourself properly. So your aim is to get the answer to this question. And your perceptions and your thoughts will organize themselves around that question and you'll get answers. Like they'll rise up, you know, in that mysterious way that thoughts rise up. And some of them you'll find uncomfortable because your, your mind will present you with demands to do things that you may have been avoiding or that you find difficult or challenging. But you can you can train yourself to set yourself a list of tasks for the day that do put you in better shape that night than you were in the morning it it doesn't help to shy away from difficult issues because you're stuck with them they're not going away the best you can do is something worthwhile in the face of them 
And so you figure out what that worthwhile thing is and then that gives you, and then you practice implementing. That gives you some character and some strength and that's the sort of thing that can help transform you into a leader. What you do is actually important and what you leave undone as well. Both of those things. Like each individual is more significant and more, it has more impact than, than they think for better or for worse. I mean, you can think about it this way, you know, in your lifetime, you're going to influence, directly influence at least a thousand people. And each of those thousand people will influence a thousand. And so that's a million people, one person separated from you and a billion people, two people separated from you. We live in a network and we're really tightly associated with one another. And if you hold your head high and you confront the future courageously and you put your life together and you develop a, a, a integrated and valuable plan and you implement it and you're a trustworthy person, you have an unbelievably positive effect on everything around you. And so it actually matters that you do these things. And it, it doesn't, I don't believe that it really matters where in the formal power hierarchy you sit you know because you might think well i'm at the bottom of the power rungs what influence do i have and i think that's a bad way of thinking about it because it doesn't take into account the networked issue and so if you don't want things to be worse which you wouldn't if you were a sensible person then it would probably be better to work hard to make them better and to also understand that you you're playing a determining role in how reality unfolds when you're doing so. It's not a trivial thing. People are far more powerful forces for good and evil than they believe. So, and I think that's more true. And I haven't come to that realization lightly. So, so, you want to be a leader in the best sense. And a leader in the best sense is someone who makes things better and not worse. And if we all made things better, then they would be a lot better, and that would be a good thing. That's what we should be striving for. To be precise in your speech does two things. It specifies your goal, and it reduces uncertainty. You see what you aim at. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I really don't, because you're a lot more blind than you think. You, there's a lot of the world that you don't see. You see most of what's in front of you in a very blurry way, like your peripheral vision is extremely low resolution. You see clearly a tiny focal area that, that's where you're pointing your eyes. And so, and you point your eyes at what you want to pay attention to. And what you want to pay attention to is generally associated with what you want. So what that means is that the world reveals itself to you in relationship to what you want. And so that's really helpful because you, you want to see the world so you don't stumble blindly through it and fall into a pit. You want to get to where you're going. And so if you specify where you're going very clearly, then that enables you to see the pathway forward. Now, the upside to that is that you can probably get to where you want to go. The downside is you also make your conditions of failure very explicit. And that's hard on people in the short term. You know, it's, it's easy to delude yourself and to leave everything vague because then you can't tell when you're failing. But that doesn't stop you from failing. It just stops you from seeing it while it's happening. 
Then the other advantage to being precise in your speech and your aims is that that helps you tell the difference between what's important and what isn't important. And you want almost everything to be not important. You know, in times of crisis in your life, everything becomes important. So imagine that you have a, a new physical symptom that's distressing and you don't understand it. So then you're thinking, oh my God, what's happening? Am I collapsing physically? Am I, have I got a serious illness? Is it a fatal illness? What's going to happen to my family? Is my whole life going to fall apart? Like what happens when, when something that you can't specify occurs is that everything becomes relevant. And that's terrible. No one, no one ever wants that. You want hardly anything to be relevant. And so if you specify your goal, then almost everything becomes irrelevant. And only those things that are important stand up in sharp, in sharp relief. That's also a real boon to the people that you're communicating with because they know what you want then. And so they, even if you're a harsh person, let's say that you're pretty punitive and if people don't do a good job, you, you know, you let them know. If you specify what you want, then they know how to avoid your harshness. And the more precise you are in your formulation of the problem and in your presentation of a solution and the role you might play in that solution, the more likely you are to advance on all fronts. As far as I can tell, there's nothing you can do that moves you and your agenda, your vision, let's say, forward faster than precision in speech. You have to know what it is that you're doing with your life, let's say, generally speaking, but more particularly in the next three to five years. What do you want? What do you want from your friends, your family, your intimate relationships, your employment, your education, your care of your mental and physical health, your response to temptations like drug and alcohol use? If you could have what you wanted, if you could lay your life out properly, how would you be functioning across those seven dimensions? Why would that work for you? Why would it work for your family? And why would it work for the broader community? Then that gives you a reason, a reason. And if you have a reason that's well thought through, that you find compelling, so that's a compelling story, let's say, the kind of compelling story a leader might tell, then that will provide you with motivation to do the things that are difficult that you need to do. So that's positive emotion, that motivation. It's a neurochemical system that runs on the chemical dopamine. And it's the thing that, it's the neurochemical system that underlies people's willingness to undertake something voluntarily. So we experience most positive emotion in relationship to a goal. And what that means is if you don't have a goal, then you don't have any motivation. And so what that means is you better have your goals well delineated because that way you'll be maximally motivated. Now, the additional advantage to that is that if you have your goals delineated and they're compelling goals for you, it also makes you less anxious and uncertain and stressed because the, your pathway forward into the future is mapped and that makes it more certain and uncertainty causes stress and, and physiological uh, load. Okay, so you want to have your large-scale vision, you want to have it thought out on a three to five year basis, you want to have it cover those seven or so dimensions that we already described. You want to see how, why it's relevant to you and your family and the broader community. 
You want to break that down into your monthly, weekly, and daily practices. And if they can be routinized, then so much the better. And then that becomes built into you. So what happens neurologically is that when you do something new, you use almost your whole brain. That's a good way of thinking about it, particularly the right side of it, the right hemisphere. And as you practice something, the amount of your brain you use gets smaller and smaller until and moves leftward until you basically build a effective little machine at the back that takes care of it automatically. Routinizing things decreases the cognitive and physiological load. It's a big deal. And if you routinize good habits, then they become part of your character and part of what people come to expect of you. I spent a fair bit of time talking about the flood, which is a very common mythological story, the idea that there is a flood and that the creator of, of everything determines that from time to time to wipe things out. And that, that's appropriately read as a description of the conditions of existence. You know, no matter who you are, as you walk through life, you're going to be confronted by catastrophes that have the possibility of washing you away. And you need to know how to conduct yourself in order to prevail when that happens. I mean, that can happen to you personally. You can get very ill or it can happen to you in your family when a family member breaks down or, or dies or, or has something terrible happen to them or there's an economic catastrophe in your family. And it can happen socially. And it, not only can it happen, it will happen. You know, in, in the injunction to Noah, for example, or the description of Noah, because he's the person that builds an ark, is that he walks with God. And that means that he has his moral house in order and that his generations are perfect, which means that he has his family in order. And what that means is that when the crisis comes, he's prepared to deal with it and, and can prevail. And that's what people need to know. They need to know how to do that because the crisis is always coming. That's why the apocalypse, the idea of the apocalypse and the end of the world is also archetypal. It's because our worlds come to an end c continually in small ways and sometimes in large ways. And so in some sense, it's necessary to be constantly preparing for the apocalypse because you're going to go through experiences in your life that will throw you for a loop and force you to either radically change or to, or to fail and perhaps to die. So those experiences in life where the fundamental constants that keep you oriented shift and then you fall into the unknown. That's the underworld of mythology. You fall into the unknown and into the underworld. And part of that underworld can be hell. Now, hell is the part of the underworld that emerges when you're embittered by your failure and you turn towards the desire to destroy. And everyone who thinks about this can, can appreciate that because most people, at least if they reflect on their own experience, can understand full well the negative psychological consequences of, of falling flat on your face. It's, it's not only that you fail, it's that you become bitter and turn against the world. That's a trip to hell for all intents and purposes. The fundamentalist types tend to read those things very concretely and to only project that out into an afterlife, say, or, or a purely spiritual world. And I'm not making any claims about, at the moment, about metaphysics or, or post-life existence. I'm saying that these descriptions pertain to psychological conditions that are always around us right here and now and that the mythological landscape is the landscape of human experience it's not the objective world and the landscape of human experience and the objective world aren't the same thing there's no pain a pain is not an objective thing it's part of the subjective world of human experience but it's but it's it's reality is is undeniable from an experiential perspective so 
our, our materialist outlook doesn't do a good job of orienting us in the world because it doesn't tell us how to behave, and it can't. You know, it's the famous conundrum put forward by David Hume, that just which is you can't derive an ought from an is, which means no matter how much factual information you extract from the world, you're not going to derive from that an unerring guide to how you should act. And so you might say, well, there's an endless number of answers to the question how you should act, but that's not helpful because all that does is disorient you. You want to push yourself out against the world in as many ways as you can because that forces you to develop. You know, and, and there's, 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 that's partly because as you push yourself out against the world and learn new things, you become more and more informed, right, by the information that you're, that you're um, generating in your active encounter with the world. But also we know that when you put yourself in new situations, new genes turn on in your nervous system and they code for new proteins. And so you exist a lot in potential and the way that, and you need to actualize that potential into in order to become all that you need to be in order to prevail in the world. And the way that you do that is by pushing yourself out against new unknown things and forcing your own transformation in the face of those challenges. And the idea is that if you do that, let's say religiously, then you can turn yourself into a character that has enough power and strength to prevail in the tragic conditions of life without becoming embittered and, and cruel and malevolent. And I mean, it, again, to me, this, the longer I study this, I suppose the more self-evident it seems to me, life is very difficult. It will challenge you to, to your core. You need to be able to withstand that challenge or, or you'll, you'll warp and, and deteriorate. How do you develop yourself to withstand that challenge? You take on responsibilities and challenges voluntarily and strengthen yourself. How else could you possibly do it? I mean, you could hide, but there's no hiding. You can't hide from illness and death. You can't hide from loneliness or pain. It's not possible. And if you retreat, then the things that chase you just grow larger. So you have to put yourself together. And you do that by seeing what's right in front of you, regardless of whether or not you like it. And encouraging yourself to master what you see voluntarily and to extend yourself and to stretch yourself out constantly. And you do that with your eyes open and you do that with your, with your speech and thinking carefully monitored and regulated so that you don't corrupt yourself with unnecessary ignorance and delusion because that will just hurt you when the crisis comes. So this is why these, and then it goes back to why these meta narratives, these archetypes exist. They instruct us on how to do just that, right? How to face chaos, how to face tragedy, um, because they provide examples. They set the path. Yeah, they set right. the pattern. Yeah, and and the the issue is how do you manifest the pattern in in your own life? That's the crucial issue: is how do you realize the archetype in your own life? And you do that in part by accepting the struggles of your being or perhaps even welcoming them and subjugating yourself to them and opening yourself up to the possibility of radical transformation in 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 the face of your errors and faults that's humility i suppose you're not all that you could be well you might say well why does that matter well that's it's easy to answer that 
if you're not all that you can be, you will suffer more than you have to, and so will the people around you. And you might say, well, I don't care about that. It's like, well, that's unlikely because virtually everyone cares about their own pain. But even if you have got to the point where you don't care about that, that's certainly nothing to be happy about or proud of. It's, it's a catastrophe. You have to become who you are, right? According to Pindar, quoted by Nietzsche. Well, that's associated with Jung's idea of the self, is that, and that and one of the ways to understand that, because it seems like a very strange pronouncement, is that you are what you are, but you're also what you could be, which is a strange thing, right? Because, and that's no more than to say that you are characterized by an indefinite amount of potential. So you are what you are, and you are the potential that, that you are. And that's a very paradoxical statement because it's not obvious how you can be something that's potential because potential isn't being it's it's the possibility of becoming but be that as it may we're stuck with it it's a paradox but we're stuck with it the the goal of authenticity from an existential perspective is to pursue that which you could be so that you can flesh yourself out so you can burn off what about you is dead and outdated and so that you can allow what could be to come to life and the the deep archetypal idea is that to the degree that you do that you redeem yourself and you redeem the world around you and i believe that that's again i i don't think that that's metaphysics it seems to be the the most practical of truths you can be afraid but you can't stop yeah that's the thing because the fear is justifiable, but it's not, that doesn't make it a sufficient reason to retreat and stop. There's no retreat in life. That's the thing. There might be periods that where you can pull back and rest, but because we're surrounded by the unknown and the unexpected, and because we're characterized by the consequences of our ultimate ignorance, and because we're finite, there's no stepping back. I've done about 150 public lectures or so in the last year all over the world. And to large audiences, the audiences in Australia were starting to approach, well, we had audiences for 5,500 people in Australia. So, which is quite remarkable, you know, that. 5,500 people would come to listen to like a serious discussion about philosophical, theological, and, and psychological issues and, and to participate in that. And, and I don't pull any punches. I'm not speaking down. I would never speak down to an audience. I, I think that's a dreadful error of arrogance. But the reason that I think people believe what I say is that I'm very pessimistic. Well, look, because most times when you, when you listen to someone who's, who's a motivational speaker, let's say, you know, it fills you with a, a temporary optimism, but you go home and, and, and the wiser part of you knows that mostly it's, it's the painting over of rotten wood with, with a fresh coat of paint. And I tell my audiences very clearly that their life is going to be difficult and sometimes difficult beyond both imagining and 
tolerance and that that is definitely in your future if it isn't in your present and for many people it's in their present and that that and that and that that can be unbearable that enough to turn you against life itself to corrupt to corrupt you to to drive you to nihilism to drive you to suicide and worse to drive you to thoughts of of vengefulness of of infinite scope to, to not only be turned against yourself and your fellow men but to be turned against being itself because of its intrinsically brutal in some sense nature and and that is worse than that actually because it's not only that we suffer and and that that will necessarily occur but that we all make our suffering worse because of our ignorance and our malevolence and everyone knows that to be true and so the discussions start let's say on a on a on an unshakable foundation but then i can tell people look despite that despite that we're remarkable creatures you know we're capable of taking up the burden of that suffering and facing the reality of that malevolence voluntarily we can actually do that and all of the psychological evidence suggests and this is independent of your school of psychology if you're a practical psychologist a clinical psychologist of any sort the evidence is crystal clear that if people voluntarily confront the problems that face them and the malevolence that surrounds them that they can make headway against it and not only psychologically so it's not only meaningful to do that psychologically which which it is to to confront the problems that that torment you voluntarily that's meaningful psychologically but it's also practically useful in that you can actually solve some of the problems that beset you when i talk to undergraduates i ask them you know how much time do you waste every day by your own reckoning and it's somewhere between 5 and 8 hours you know it's a lot of it's a lot of time well and i usually walk through i walk the stu students through an economic analysis of that i said well you know why don't you value your time at $50 an hour and calculate for yourself just exactly what you're doing to your future by your inability to discipline yourself it's worth thinking through in any case people do waste a lot of time and they are they also act counterproductively a lot of the time regardless we do make progress and 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 we can thrive under the difficult conditions that make up our lives and we can resist the malevolence that entices us that's within our power and we don't know the limits to that and we also know that it's better to we all know this that is better to live courageously then cowardly everyone knows that that's what you teach people that you love and 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 we know that it's better to live truthfully than in deceit and you can tell that too because that's also what you tell people that you love and we know that you should pick up your damn responsibility and move forward everyone knows that it's it's part of our intrinsic moral nature and that nature is there and 
it's not difficult to communicate to people about this. Like, everyone knows that you wake up at three in the morning when you've left, let your life go off the rails and that you berate yourself for your uselessness and your cruelty and your failure to take, op to take the opportunities that are in front of you. And if you were the master in your own house, in some sense, the captain of your own destiny, if there was no intrinsic nature, well, that would never happen. You'd just let yourself off the hook. There'd be no voice of conscience tormenting you. But no one escapes from that. And what that indicates is, to me is that, at least psychologically, we live in a universe that's characterized by a moral dimension. And we understand that well. And that moral failings have consequences. And that they're not trivial. They destroy you. They destroy your family. They destroy your community. And, and you can tell people that. And they listen because they know. They don't know they know. That's the thing. And maybe that's the thing about being an, an intellectual. You have the opportunity to articulate ideas that other people know. They embody. But they can't articulate. And that's what people tell me. You know, they say, well, you help me give words to things that I always knew to be true but couldn't say. Or, or they say... I've been trying to put some of your precepts into practice. Responsibility being a main one. Vision, another. Honesty, I, I suppose, bringing up the pack and saying, this is the fun part of doing all of this. Fun is a weak word. That it's, 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 a, it's the remarkable part of doing all this. I mean, I have people tell me constantly, wherever I go, it's so delightful that... You know, they were in a pretty dark place and they tell me why and there's plenty of dark places in the world and they decided well maybe they were gonna develop a bit of a vision and take a bit more responsibility and start telling the truth and putting some effort into something and they come up and they say well you can't believe how much better things are it's like <laughs> I've I got I got three promotions I had one guy tell me this was a lovely story you know 15 seconds he came up after a talk he said Two years ago, I got out of jail. I was homeless. He said, I own my own house. I have a six-figure income. I got married and I have a daughter. Thank you. That was the whole conversation. It's like he decided. He decided he was going to put his life together. And you know, and so you can look at that pessimism that, 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 that constitutes, let's say, the core of what... Well, I think it's the core religious message, really, is the, is the tragic nature of the world, the reality of suffering, it's, it's part of the core religious message. But what emerges out of that, properly conceptualized, is a remarkable appreciation for what human beings are capable of. Like we are unbelievably resilient and, and able creatures and we do not have any conception of our upper limits. I would say for the last 45 years, we've told psychologists have been, have been certainly to blame for this, at least in part, you're okay the way you are. That's what we tell young people. Oh, you're okay the way you are. It's like, and there's nothing worse than you can tell, that you can tell someone who's young than that, especially if they're miserable, you know, and lots of them, well, if they're miserable and aimless, it's like, 
oh, I'm miserable and aimless, and sometimes I'm suicidal and I'm nihilistic and I don't have any direction in your life. It's in my life. It's like, well, you're okay the way you are here. And it's like, they don't want to hear that. They want to hear, look, you know, you're, and you know this, you're useless. You know nothing. You haven't got started. You've got 60 years to put yourself together and God only knows what you could become. And that's so, that message is so much more, it's so funny because it's so, it's such an attack, but it's so positive because there's faith there in the, in the potential that makes up the person rather than the miserable actuality that happens to be manifesting itself at the moment. And young people respond extraordinarily well to that because, and you know that if you're a parent and you love your, your child, your son, your daughter, what you're trying to foster is the best in them. You want that to manifest itself across the course of their life. You want them to become continually more than they are, to see what they could be. And, well, and I think that's part of the great message of the West, is that that's, that's, the, that's the ethical requirement of individual being in, in, in the proper sense, is to constantly know that you're not what you could be, to take responsibility for that, and to, and to commit yourself, like body and soul, to the attainment of that ideal. If you ask for something, it will be given to you, right? It was a very strange idea, but I like that idea a lot, and I believe, my, in my experience, that has been true. If it was that I wanted what I was asking for, because that's the real issue, right? Because the question is, if you want something, what does it mean to want it? And what it means is to sacrifice whatever is necessary to get it, because otherwise you don't want it. And so there's an equation here, and I'm not claiming its ultimate accuracy, but the equation is something like, you don't want it unless you're willing to sacrifice for it. And if you don't want it, you're not going to get it, because you're scattered. But if you do want it and you make the proper sacrifices, then God only knows what might happen. And that's a... See, one of the things I really like about the existential philosophers is their emphasis on personal responsibility. You know, the, many of them had an emphasis on the role that people had in shaping their own destiny. The exist, for the existentialists, and I think this was a consequence of the religious substructure of, of philosophical thinking, it was self-evident that life was tragic and, and bitter. But, and, and fair enough, but that isn't where it ended. The, the next issue was, well, there are better and, ways, better and worse ways of dealing with that, and the better way of dealing with the fact that life is tragic and bitter is to posit the self you could be and live authentically in relationship to that. And then the next issue, and some, this is something Kierkegaard talked about, particularly when he talked about the necessity of being a knight of faith, is that the thing is, and this is, I think, part of, the life, part of life that's the intractable adventure. No one can take the adventure of life away from you. That, that's, they can't do it with good advice, for example, because no one can demonstrate to you that if you straighten yourself out and aim at what you want and make the proper sacrifices, that your life will turn out in the manner that you might want it to turn out. 
it isn't in anyone else's purview to make that judgment. The only person that can possibly figure that out is you. It's something that can't be stolen from you. I would say it's your destiny. It's a destiny that cannot be stolen from you. And you can forego it. You can say, well, I'm not willing to put in the effort because what if I fail? Well, first of all, if you don't put in the effort, you will fail because life is hard and it, it takes everything out of you to do it properly. So you will fail. And if you make the proper sacrifices, you might fail. That's why I like the ambiguity in the story of Cain and Abel, because we're never really told why God rejects Cain's offerings. There's hints that Cain maybe isn't doing as good a job as he should, and he certainly gets bitter about it, but there's no smoking pistol. It doesn't say, well, Cain is a bad guy, and he made terrible sacrifices, so God rejected him. You never know. Cain might have been working pretty damn hard, and things still didn't work out for him. And I think that ambiguity is appropriate in the story, because that ambigu ambiguity is in life. You'd, you'd, you'd be a fool to say that Everything always works out for everyone if they just do things right. I mean, I think that's a very, that's a very careless thing to say, given how much tragedy and catastrophe there is in the world and how much of it seems to be undeserved. But that still has very little bearing, I think, on, on, on your own individual adventure and the necessity for, the necessity for opening the door to who you could be and, and the necessity to do that seriously. And I do believe, and, and I, think, I, I think that's why this most impossible of verses, you know, knock and the door will open, why that's believable is that I have never met anyone who couldn't hypothesize a better them in some manner. All they had to do was ask. It's like, well, how could you be better? Think, well, here's three ways. It's like, it's no problem, right? You can think about that in no time flat. Maybe it's small ways. But you can almost always at least think of something stupid that you're doing that you could quit. There's, there's an idea that Jung developed about the trickster and the jester, the comedian, right? That the, the trickster is the precursor to the savior. That's one of the things I learned from Jung that was just, it's so unlikely. You'd never think that. It's so amazing that that might be the case. But the 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 the, the, sat the satirical and the ironic and the, and the troublemaker, the, the comedian, the fool. The fool is the precursor to the savior. Why? Because you're a fool when you start something new. And so if you're not willing to be a fool, then you'll never start anything new. And if you never start anything new, then you won't develop. And so the willingness to be a fool is the precursor to transformation. And that's the same as humility. And so if you're going to write your destiny, you can do a bad first job. You're going to get smarter as you move forward. That's the thing, is that, so something beckons to you, that's what happens here. Maybe the star that Geppetto wished on was the wrong damn star, but at least it was a star, right? At least it was in the sky. At least it moved him forward. And so you say in your life, well, something grips you and, and, and fills you with interest. And you think, well, should I do that? And the answer is, if not that, then something. What if it's a mistake? It's a mistake. Rest assured, what do you know? You're going to stumble around, right? And what's going to happen is this. You're going to move, to, you're going to not stay in stasis. You're not going to wander around in circles. And I see people like that. They said, well, I never knew what to do, and now I'm 40. It's like, that's not so good. That's not so good. And you might say, well, and there is a literature too that suggests that people are a lot more unhappy when they look back on their lives about the things they didn't do 
than they are about the mistakes they made while they were doing things. And so that's really worth thinking about too, because there's redemptive mistakes. And a redemptive mistake would be a mistake that you make when you go out and try to do something. You know, you actually, you think, okay, I'm going to try to do this. And you're not good at it. You make a bunch of mistakes. It's like, what, what's the consequence if you pay attention? Is You're not quite so stupid anymore. That's the thing, is you've been informed by, your, by the results of your errors. And so what happens is, you, you, you follow the beacon, you follow the light. And, and you're blind, so you don't know where the light is. It's, it's dimly apprehended only, and you're afraid to follow it. But you decide to take some stumbling steps towards it. And as you take stumbling steps towards it, you become illuminated and enlightened and informed because of the nature of your experience, because you're pushing yourself beyond where you are and you're going into the country that you have not yet been in and you learn something. And so what happens then is the star moves. You move 10 feet towards it and you think, no, that's not right. I didn't get it right. It isn't there. It's actually there. And so then you, you see it somewhere else and you shift yourself slightly and you move forward. And that's what happens is that you continue as you change. The thing that guides you forward moves, right? It's like God in the, in, the, in the desert in Egypt, the pillar of light that you're following. It's moving. It's not a permanent thing. You move towards it. It moves away. It guides you forward. And so you say, well, is what I'm aiming at paradise itself? And the answer to that is no, because what do you know? You, you couldn't see paradise if it was right in front of you, but you might get a glimmer of it. And so you move towards it and you grow. And then the next time you open your eyes, you see a little bit more clearly. And that's what happens is that just happens over and over, right? It keeps moving. And so you move like this. But the thing that's so cool is that all those zigs and zags, you say, and each of those zags is a, and zigs is a catastrophe. I hit a wall, my God, and then I had to die a little bit and I barely got back up. It's a phoenix transformation at each at each turn and it's painful but the thing is is that even though you've you've traveled 20 miles let's say on that road and you've only moved three miles forward you've moved three miles forward instead of falling backwards because that's the thing too is that if you stand still you fall backwards you cannot stand still because the world moves away from you if you stand still and there's no stasis there's only backwards and so if you're not moving backward, back forwards, then you're moving backwards. And that's more, more of the underlying truth of, of the Matthew principle. To those who have everything, more will be given. From those who have nothing, everything will be taken. It's a warning. Do not stay in one place. Well, as you zig and zag, maybe the... Maybe the cataclysm of each transformation starts to lessen. There's not so much of you that has to die with every mistake. And maybe you end up oriented at least reasonably properly. And if you were sensible, that would have been your trip. But it wasn't, right? It's that. And perhaps it's a lot worse than that. Perhaps there's no shortage of backtracking. But it doesn't matter because as you stumble forward, you, you illuminate and inform yourself. And perhaps that's partly because the world is made of information. And if you encounter it and tangle with it, then it informs you. And then you become informed. And then you're in formation. And then you're ready.
we've met some of your fans and uh, we got the impression they were all male fans, that the ones that we talked to, um, and that they were struggling with their manhood and that you uh, give them this message that it's okay to be a man. It's not okay. It's necessary. What the hell are we going to do without men? You look around the city here, you see all these buildings go up, these men, they're doing impossible things. They're under the streets, working on the sewers, they're up on the power lines in the storms and the, and the rain. They're keeping this impossible infrastructure functioning, this thing that works in a miraculous manner. They work themselves to death, and often literally, and, and the, the, um, the gratitude for that is sorely lacking, especially among the people who should be most grateful. You see university professors, especially of the social justice bent, who are among the most protected and privileged people that the world has ever produced. They take everything they have for granted, failing to understand entirely that there's a massive infrastructure of unbelievably hardworking, solidly laboring, working class men breaking themselves in half on a regular basis making sure that everything that always breaks works and so a little gratitude for that is in order and it's very useful to tell everyone not just men that they have an important role to play a necessary role and that if they act properly and honestly and forthrightly that they can put their lives together and they can help their families and they can make their communities better and that that's not toxic masculinity that appalling phrase it's what keeps the world going round if we had any sense we'd understand that instead of doing everything at every possible moment to label what we have in the west as oppressive and patriarchal and and, and fundamentally predicated on power of all the insane propositions. Anybody who's ever worked for a functional organization knows perfectly well that the organization isn't predicated on power. You have a boss who's, whose fundamental motivation is power. Well, first of all, the probability that he's going to be successful is very low because everyone will be working against him behind the scenes. The people who are successful are good mentors and they're hard workers and they're productive and they're competent and they do their job properly and they do everything they can my observation has been that they do everything they can to find junior colleagues who have potential and possibility and work diligently to further their careers and find that a major if not the major source of satisfaction in their life. Certainly the people I've met in my life who've been very successful, and I've met many very successful people, are thrilled to death when they can find someone who's young and willing and able and conscientious and straightforward and diligent, and they open doors for them in every direction they can possibly manage. And none of that's credited to the oppressive capitalist patriarchal system which also is doing miracles is performing miraculously all around the world raising the standard of living of poor people everywhere in the world at a rate that's 
unprecedented in human history. You know, for me to, to feel empathy for you, I have to see the world through your eyes. And I do that with my body. I go, what I do, technically, is I attempt to, to determine what your goal is. And I do that by observing, well, your nonverbal um, behavior substantially, your verbal behavior as well, especially the direction of your eyes. And I get some sense of what you're focused on as a consequence of that. And because of that, I can also focus on that. And if I do the same thing, then my body reacts the same way yours does. In which case, I feel emotions that are similar to yours. And then I can understand you. And so when you go to a movie, or you read a piece of literature, you focus on the protagonist, or whatever, or the series of protagonists, and you identify their goals. And by identifying their goals, you can place yourself in the same state of mind that they are, and then you can embody their emotions. It's not a cognitive process, it's an embodied process. And then you can read off your emotions and infer what they might be thinking. And then that gives you the opportunity to see the world from the perspective of other people, which you need to do if you're going to cooperate and compete with them successfully. And so literature, storytelling, not literature specifically, but storytelling and Ever, all of the dramatic arts are there precisely to facilitate that understanding. That's why children pretend play so often and so naturally. They, they adopt roles to, to become other people so that they can understand each other. It's crucially important. And um, one of the things that I'm concerned about is the fact that our modern technologies, especially uh, phones, because they're so ubiquitous, are likely interfering with children's ability to engage in sufficient dramatic play. And because of that, it's destabilizing their identities. I often wonder if these, these, these adolescents who are having gender role confusion, and say, let's call it identity confusion in general, are, are doing something like delayed pretend play because they didn't get it when they were young. And it's not optional, it's crucial. There's about a four year period from about the age of, let's say three till seven or eight, where you need to engage in continual dramatic play. And that's what catalyzes your identity, enables you to practice who you're going to be. And if that's interfered with, well, we have no idea what the consequences of that will be. I would say social isolation to begin with, because a kid that can't play, you know, is, is hopeless socially. You're hopeless socially unless you can play. And, and you need that early. I've traveled to 160 cities in the last year and spoken to about 350,000 people about personal responsibility and the meaning that is to be found in, in not in rights, but in, but in responsibility. And no one seems to be talking about that for reasons I don't understand. And so people are starving to hear that also for reasons I don't understand. So that's the situation now. And it's a very odd life. Um, although 
my name is not, I would say, particularly positive among certain elements of the press. Um, I'm accused of all sorts of things that have absolutely nothing to do with what I believe. Um, but my normal life, such as it is, is continually punctuated by encounters with people on the street dozens a day if I go outside of people who tell me that they're, they've watched my videos, they listen to my podcasts, they read my book, they're, they were in desperate straits six months ago, they're doing much better and so they're thankful about that and help and pleased that someone is offering them an encouraging word. So I actually to be, happen to be rather positively predisposed to people. And I think that's rare because in our culture we believe that we're something like a cancer on the planet and that our activity is unconscionably destructive and that the best thing we could do is to cease having children and make ourselves scarce. And I think that that's a viewpoint that's cruel and vicious and resentful and appalling and I buy none of it. We do the best we can under very difficult circumstances and we're only barely waking up to our planetary responsibilities and not doing such a bad job for people who've only figured it out 50 years ago. So I'm trying to offer people some encouragement for their trouble. And they seem in staggeringly desperate need of that. It's very peculiar and difficult to accustom myself to meeting endless parades of strangers everywhere in the world who tell me a desperate story with a happy ending. It's a very private story, you know, and they obviously trust me enough to, first of all, tell me what was wrong and then let me in on the fact that things have improved dramatically because they've developed a vision for their life and because they've decided to marry their girlfriend and because they've decided to have a family, finally, and to settle down and to work at their career even though they may just have a job and to tell the truth and that that's working. So rule one is stand up straight with your shoulders back and rule two is treat yourself like you're someone responsible for helping. And number three, which is very tightly associated with number two, there's sort of variations on a theme, is make friends with those people who want the best for you. And by the way, these last two rules aren't injunctions designed to make your life easier. They're actually injunctions designed to make your life more difficult. Um, Kierkegaard said at one point that his role in life, given that everything was proceeding to become 
easier and easier in all possible ways that there would come a time when people would cry out for difficulty. And so that's partly how he envisioned his role in the world, interestingly enough, as a universal benefactor of mankind who would strive to do nothing other than to make life more difficult for everyone. Right, and so rule two and three are like that because treat yourself as if you're someone responsible for helping isn't the same as be nice to yourself. It's not that. And to associate with people who want the best for you means that they get to demand the best from you. And that's also not an easy thing. Rule four is compare yourself to who you were yesterday and not to who someone else is today. And that's an injunction about envy, right? It's easy. You need people who, you need things that are above you because you need to do something worthwhile with your life. You need something to aim at. But one of the consequences of that is that you can become envious of people that you believe have attained more in a deserved or undeserved manner. And that can make you bitter. And so it's much better to compare yourself to yourself and to use yourself as the target for improvement and comparison. Rule five is don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. And the rule of thumb there is if you dislike them, then other people will. And it's a bad idea to allow your children to act in a way that makes other children dislike them or adults dislike them, given that they're going to have to deal with children and they're going to have to deal with adults. So your primary responsibility as a parent is to help your child learn how to behave so that the social world opens up its arms to them and welcomes them at every level. And you've done your job if you can manage that. And it's not a simple thing to do. Rule six is put your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. And that's not take no action for others until you have your act together. That isn't what the rule means. It means that bind your ambition with humility and work on what's right in front of you that you will suffer for if you get wrong before you engage in the large-scale transformation of other people. Rule seven is do what is meaningful and not what is expedient. And I would say in some sense, in some sense that's the core ethos of the book. Not exactly, because rule eight, which is tell the truth or at least don't lie, is a necessary conjunction to that or a necessary additional element. Because I don't think that you can pursue what is meaningful without telling the truth. And the reason for that is if you don't tell the truth, or let's say if you lie, which is an easier way to think about it, you corrupt the mechanisms, the instinctual mechanisms that, that, that manifest themselves as meaning, and then you can't trust them. And that's a very bad idea. So the fundamental reason to not lie is because you corrupt your own perceptions if you lie. And when you corrupt your own perceptions, then you can't rely on yourself. And if you can't rely on yourself, then, well, good luck to you. Because what are you going to rely on in the absence of your own judgment? You're, you've got nothing if you, if you lose that. Rule nine, assume that the person that you're listening to knows something you don't. And that's not so much a mark of respect for the person, although it is that. It's a mark of recognition of your own unbearable ignorance. You know, one of the things you have to do in life, you have to decide what's more important. 
what you know or what you don't know. First of all, there's a lot of what you don't know. And so if you make friends with that, if you decide that's important, then, well, that's a good thing because you're going to be surrounded by what you don't know your entire life. And so if you're appreciative of that, then that's going to make things go better for you. But, but the other element of that is, well, why should you be appreciative of what you don't know? And the answer to that is, well, you shouldn't. If your life is absolutely perfect in every way, you have exactly what you need and want, you've put everything in order around you, then what you know is sufficient. But if you believe that things could still be put right around you in your own personal life and with regard to the effect that you have on other people, then obviously what you don't yet know is more important than what you do know and you should be paying attention to find out what you don't know at every possible moment. And if you're fortunate when you have a conversation with someone and you're actually interested in what they say, then even if they're not very good at communicating, even if they're awkward, or even if they display a certain amount of enmity towards you, there's always the possibility that they might tell you something you don't know, in which case you can walk away from the conversation less ignorant and corrupt than you were when you started the conversation. And if your life isn't everything that you would like it to be, then being slightly less ignorant and corrupt is probably a good thing. And so, Rule 10 is be precise in your speech. And that's, that's an observation, I would say, that, that's a variant of a New Testament injunction, which is, or maybe a description of the nature of the world, which is, knock and the door will open and ask and you will receive, which is a very strange theory, let's say. But, which I would say is far more in accordance with what we know about the psychology of perception, let's say, than you might imagine. Because it is the case that you don't get what you don't aim at. You might get what you do aim at. And your aim might get better as you aim as well, which is something to consider. If you specify the nature of the... Actually, if you specify the nature of the being that you want to bring into being, then you radically increase the probability that that's what will occur. And of course, you all know that because you regard yourself, at least to some degree, as active creative agents, right? Your fundamental attitude towards yourself, at, at least in the manner that you act towards yourself, is that you wake up in the morning and you have a landscape of possibilities that lay themselves open to you and you make choices between those possibilities and determine in consequence how the world is going to manifest itself. So you confront a field of potential. That's a good way of thinking about it. And through your choices, you determine which elements of that potential are going to concretize themselves into the real world. And you are very unhappy with yourself if you don't do that properly. And you're very unhappy with other people if they don't do that properly. And you're very unhappy with other people if they don't treat you like that's what you're like because part of what you demand from people, let's say, in terms of sheer civility, is that they act towards you as if you're the locus of voluntary choice in a world of potential. And you upbraid each other for that as well. If you have children and parents, your parents will say to you, if you're fortunate, you're not living up to your potential, which is actually a compliment in a sense, even though it's also a judgment. And the compliment is, 
I know perfectly well that you could be more than you are. Rule 11 is don't bother children when they're skateboarding. And that's actually a, a discussion of courage, of encouragement, more, more specifically. Because I've, I've been trying to understand, for example, what role parents play in the lives of their children. And I would say this is a role that, that, that is of fundamental importance, as well as attempting to guide your children so that they act in a socially desirable manner, so that the world opens itself up to them. You also want to encourage them, which is not the same as sheltering them. It's not the same at all. And to encourage someone is to say something like, or to act out something like, look kid, the world is a very hard place. And it's a bitter place in many ways. And it's not only a hard and bitter place, it's also touched with betrayal and malevolence. And that's the fundamental bottom line. But there's something in you that is capable of taking that full on and transcending it. And that's encouragement. You say, well, as difficult as things are, you're up to the challenge. So in Rule 12 is pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. And it's a, oddly enough, a meditation on fragility. Um, it's a discussion of what you do when you don't know what to do. And that's really when things have gone badly for you, when you face a terrible tragedy in your own personal life or in your familial life or perhaps even in the life of your community when things come crowding in at you too quickly. In, in, in the case of a death in the family or a terrible illness or the collapse of a dream or any of the things that can flip your world upside down is how do you cope with that and that chapter contains discussion of the necessity of narrowing your time frame you know, because sometimes the right way to look at the world is across years and sometimes it's across months and when things are more out of control perhaps it's across days and when things are really when you're really up against the wall it's acro across hours or even minutes and during those minutes then you concentrate on doing as well as you can with what's right in front of you for the longest unit of time that you can tolerate conceptualizing I believe that the experience of meaning is an instinct. And you could think about it as the ordering instinct. It's more like the balancing instinct, but we'll start with ordering. There's a lot inside of you that needs to be ordered and set straight. Like you're a collection of motivations and emotions and thoughts and, and proto-actions and desi desires. Well, I suppose those are the same as motivations. You're a loose collection of all those things. And something has to bring all of that into a functioning order. And the experience of deep engagement, the experience of meaning, I think, is the manifestation of the instinct that orders you. And it orders you and it orders your family and it orders the world, the broader world as well. And that instinct isn't some secondary consequence of some more important biological function, let's say. It's, it is that very function. And I think we know enough about neuroscience now, I think we know enough about how the brain operates to just make that statement categorically. 
So my hypothesis has been, and this is this is not a fully original hypothesis, it's based on the work of neuroscientists whose research I know well and respect greatly, very hard-headed people. They believe, for example, that the left hemisphere is specialized for operation in explored territory and that the right hemisphere is specialized for operation in unexplored territory. Well, you need to practice things. You need to know what you're doing and you have to have a place where that works. So that would be explored territory or, or order or routine. And so part of your brain works well there, but then that's surrounded always by things that you don't understand. And so there's another part of your brain that has to work with the things you don't understand. And the sense of meaning occurs when you get those two systems working properly together so that you're partly stable and secure and operating where you know what's going to happen next and it's going to be something that you want, but also expanding your competence at the same time and pushing yourself and stretching yourself so that if things shift on you, then you're going to be ready and prepared. And that's a deep instinct. That's the instinct of meaning as far as I can tell. And it's, it's an unerring guide to proper action in the world.